Alright everybody, welcome to another cast here on the Game Wisdom channel. I am Josh Placer and we got a very, I'm sure, lengthy chat for today. <laughs> We're going to be discussing what it means about the value of video games, both in terms of a microtransaction standpoint, even just in terms of selling them retail in the indie, AAA space, whatever. And join me for our very lengthy conversation. Please welcome back to the Excuse me, please welcome back to the cast, video game economist, Ramin Shokazad. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? I am doing well, and I cannot wait for summer to be over so my allergies can uh, be at least a little uh, less angry these days. How about you? I'm getting ready to fly out to PAX West uh, on Monday morning to give a talk out there on uh, how to make computer games healthier for people. Nice. <laughs> Just gonna sound a little bit there. I gave a similar talk in Sweden a couple months ago at the Nordic Game Conference. Mm-hmm. And the chat is saying hello to you as well. I think everyone wants to know: uh, Are you in your hammock this time? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, my housemate with the hammock uh, went to Alaska and took her hammock with her. So oh. I'm just in a regular kind of lawn chair action out here on my balcony. But I did find a plug, so I won't have to run out of power if we go super long like we tend to. Yes, and I think that that was a wise move there. Uh, Draken wants to ask, uh, how is PAX West like? Is this your first time going? Um, you know, this this might be my first time to PAX West. I've been to PAX East a couple of times, and I've been to PAX South a, a few times since it's near Austin. I, I, this might be my first time at PAX West. Nice. Let's see. Yeah, and I was just thinking about... Oh, and for people who are new watching, how is everything going with the game that you're working on? The one that you did the Kickstarter for? I think that would be like two, three months since we last spoke? Destiny Sword. Well, I'm, I'm going there with my boss, Ken, and our whole team is going to be there. We're going to have a booth there at PAX West. So if you want to come check it out, uh, you know, we've been working hard to get uh, to make our, our demo for PAX West even better than our first demo was for uh, the game at PAX East. Nice. What was the final total for the Kickstarter when it ended for you guys? Um, we, we came in like 27000 or something like that. Okay, cool. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not a, a, you know, a super large... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're not a large studio. We're new, so we're not getting like... Uh, the same sort of name recognition we might get if we were, people realized, you know, the type mm -hmm. of people that were in our studio. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And um, Mojo in chat was talking about what does it mean about making games healthier? Like, what's your talk going to be about? I'm actually going to get into the neuroscience of gaming, what goes on physically when you're gaming, and uh, some of the design choices we make to try to increase the engagement in our games and how some of those design choices actually can have negative long-term consequences for gamers, especially children. Mm -hmm. And we definitely had that a conversation similar to that. I think that was either our first or second talk here, so definitely, uh, I think you definitely are one to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, and it went really well in Sweden when I gave that talk a couple months ago, but Sweden is the type of country where they want to know that type of stuff. They're, you know, they're very consumer-oriented and and mm -hmm. consumer friendly here it's 
a little harder to talk about that kind of stuff. But it looks like we're going for we're we're live for Pax West, so uh, I'll finally get to give that talk in the United States. Nice, congratulations. Are you going to be there the whole uh, convention, or are you just going like for one or two days? I'm just going to be there for to, mostly just to give my talk, and then I'll be popping back in and forth, meeting people, and and having a little mini vacation with my girlfriend for about a week out there. All right, but. I think we should probably get to our conversation because this will probably be another. This could be another presentation you can give after we're done for this one. And we're gonna be discussing again what it means to put a value or a price tag on video games, and we're gonna try and hit as many different parts of it. So from the microtransaction side all the way up to the AAA major studio, and. This is a topic I've talked about, I think, several times. I've written several pieces about this, and it's something that a lot of people have had a hard time, I think, trying to put down to words in terms of, you know, what should a video game cost? What should be the price of, I don't know, like a fancy hat in Overwatch or a Team Fortress or even selling a feature like additional storage space or more cards or et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm going to throw things over to you first, Ron. I mean, like, what do you think about when it comes to, like, the value of what it means to buy a video game or just buy anything in the game industry? Well, I mean, as you know, I mostly do free-to-play, but I've been gaming forever. And, uh, uh, you know, it's often my job to decide what something's worth and how mm -hmm. to sell it and how to present it. Uh, so this is, a, this is something I think about quite a bit. Um, I personally, as a gamer, think that if if I'm getting a, a, at least an hour's worth of content per dollar I spent, that that I got it did it got you know I had a pretty good deal. You know the games I'm I've most enjoyed and crowed about I've actually paid about ten cents per dollar on. You know, meaning if I mm -hmm. spent fifty bucks on it, I got at least five hundred hours mm -hmm. out of it. You know, like for instance. Uh, Endless Space 2, I've got about 700 hours on that game. Uh, uh, Slay Aspire, I've got about 180 <laughs> hours. Uh, I spent 80 bucks for the full version of um, Age of Wonder Planetfall. Mm -hmm. uh, I've already got 280 hours on that. I imagine I'm going to go well past 800. It's a pretty tight game. Mm -hmm. uh, the game I spent the most on in my life personally would uh, I mean I've had games back when I was actually selling virtual goods way back mm -hmm. you know, when I was a professional gamer and and people were giving me a lot of money but as far as how much I've actually spent probably the game I spent the most on was ways of history which I played for about six years I was very serious about it but I mean I played that game for 6,000 hours on Steam and then three times that long before it was on Steam so that's about 24 thousand mm -hmm. hours so if i spent oh, over two thousand dollars in the game i still hit that 10 cent per hour yeah. marker and got a pretty good deal out of it yeah and like for myself like i've also had that discussion a lot of people especially for the people watching us live right now in terms of you know how much value are you getting out of a game is it better to have a game that is great but you only maybe get two to three hours of content out of it or a game that is on the longer side, but it's not exactly like that amazing of a title. And the one that came up lately that I know Mojo's probably going to mention as well is the game Blazing Chrome. 
This is a kind of like a retro throwback to Contra, a lot of the running guns back in the NES, NES era. And I think it was priced at $15, and I technically got three hours out of it. It was three amazing hours, but I was so good at that game that I beat the whole thing and then about in that short of time. The same thing goes for something like Cuphead. When I when I bought that game, I think it was like 30 or $40, right, what the retail price of it was, and I beat that in one night of streaming, so that was three hours for $30. And it's a very tough decision because, or a very tough conversation because, I enjoyed those games. I mean, they were some of my favorite titles. But it, I basically just like burned through them in less than a day. And then conversely, like, I play games. I also played Slay the Spy. We should do like a stream of both of us trying to play that game at the same time. <laughs> I'm up to... Oh, you're on, boy. There we go. <laughs> you heard that chat? We got a roguelike uh, challenge coming up. <laughs> <laughs> but like if I want to talk about like my most played game, so it'll probably be the buying of Isaac, which I spend like eight dollars on. And I have over a hundred hours in that. Yeah. Or like I was talking to a friend of mine last night about Left For Dead One and Two, like combined, I think I have like two thousand hours between the two yeah. games there. And I mean that's incredible value. And developers and publishers alike are chasing that dream of, you know, how much can we stuff into a game to get people to spend money either without raising the price or by having microtransactions to go along with it. And again, microtransactions have kind of been like the big thing this decade, even in the AAA space. I mean, if we look at titles like uh, Mortal Kombat that came out, I think, at the end of last year, that game had a it had a lot, and it still has more being added in, and I'm sure we're going to give even more examples of it. Now, I remember when we, like our first conversation, we were talking about the whole Battlefront kind of fiasco with EA, and overloading that. It's almost like a, a ventriloquism act. <laughs> 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 I need that. Drinking, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> I need one of those bottles for here. I just fill it with <laughs> soda and I'll be good. <laughs> no, that's no, too much sugar, man. And <laughs> 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 anyway, so, well, you know, this is a very complex subject because mm -hmm. there's so many different ways you can sell a game. And and yeah, it, are you going for the short game that's really in, in, enticing? Mm -hmm. Can you make it so the player will be willing to play through it more than once? Like. I've played Reverse Crawl. It's a very inexpensive, low-budget mm -hmm. indie game. Probably costs like five bucks or something. But I played it through like four or five times. Yeah. I just like it. I wish it was longer. Mm -hmm. uh, Battle War, no Night 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 War Battle Chasers or something like that. Yeah, it's like an RPG. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've I played that through like four or five times. Uh, yeah. um, I think it's just really a nicely, really nicely done game. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, and as we were saying, like for a lot of developers, they are trying, or even like on the publisher side, they're trying to get as much value out of a game, and or trying to raise the price of those games. And this is something that you we were just talking about on a private message regarding like there are games from like the '90s that right. And again, like we could, if we we could easily bring in game preservation as well. There are many classic games these days that have kind of gotten that hallowed or you know legendary status of people spending hundreds of dollars just to get them. 
when they could maybe even be worth in today's market thirty, forty dollars, you know, at the high end. And well, yeah, I was I was telling you, uh, Heroes of Mind Magic uh, Three. I still have the box for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. I keep some of my old boxes from 1999. I and it has a price tag on it, sixty bucks. Uh, and uh, it only sold 150,000 units, but that was considered a lot back then. Yeah. Now, now we can a really successful game will sell 20 times that many. Yeah. Uh, and and that's part of why we can put more into a game because uh, as great as that game was, it was by today's standards, it would even your cheap indie game is probably going to be uh, look a little sharper than mm-hmm. Heroes of Might and Magic Three did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, but we, we keep asking for more content, uh, more uh, graphics, more sound, better UIs, more stability. Older games mm-hmm. crash all the time. Oh, yes. and we, we, we keep wanting more, and, and the environment keeps getting more and more competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't necessarily want to spend more. I mean, in today's dollars, that game would cost us $92. Mm-hmm. And we really don't spend $92 for anything. Oh, yeah. for, you know... Uh, getting a little carried away in a free-to-play game. Or it's, you know, like the super fancy collector's edition of a title. And even those have kind of, like, gone down. Like, I remember, again, like, the days, like, of Blizzard's Heights, with each one of their collector's editions being, like, $100, and you were getting, like, $100 of art books and extra content and a Mm -hmm. making-of featurette and so on. And... Like for a lot, of, and like if we look at today with the collector's editions, it's, it becomes just like garbled mess. Like everyone makes fun of Ubisoft, for instance, when they have like you need a spreadsheet breakdown of what is and what isn't in one of their editions these days. Well, when I saw Planetfall come out and their their bigger pro- package was eighty one dollars, I was like, yeah, you go, guys. You know, if you think your game is worth more than sixty, charge more than sixty. Uh, don't be afraid to do that because. We're ready to spend more than 60. I mean, if we were spending 60 20 years ago, we're ready to spend 90 plus now. Very ready to spend 90 plus now if the game is good quality. And, and occasionally we do see good quality games. A lot of games are not that good. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing is kind of how confusing things have gone for a lot of uh, games being released, where, again, you buy the game for $40, $50. And then you see additional twenty to thirty dollars of DLC, microtransactions. We're not even talking about expansions. Again, uh, Rami and I am sure some of the older people, and we remember the days of you buy a game for forty dollars, then you spend another twenty to thirty dollars on a very meaty expansion, maybe six months a year down the line. And a lot of people uh, are having trouble, or we're seeing this like issue of being conflated with the mobile and free to play space as well. And I know we've discussed this before, the idea that, yes, the game is free, but if you want to have a chance at playing it, you still have to invest maybe $30, $40 at minimum, and then we see people spending, you know, $90, $100 plus, you know, over who knows how many months or even years of playing that game. Well, I mean, a, a, a AAA company or, 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 or a studio with that level of aspiration is is going to want to make a game that's worth a hundred dollars and they're going to want to charge a hundred dollars but they realize that not everybody is going to be able to spend a hundred dollars and that was part of the appeal of free-to-play when it came out the the what free-to-play allows you to do in pricing is something we call discriminatory pricing which means that we can charge 
two different people two different prices for the same thing. Somebody who has more money, we can charge more. Somebody who has less money, we can charge less. How we do that in games is a little tricky because the product, I mean, if we do discriminatory pricing with cornflakes in the supermarket, you know, the, one of the, the, the more expensive cornflakes comes in a fancier box. And the cheaper one has a blue stripe across it and says generic cornflakes. Uh, but it's the same cornflakes. You're just spending twice as much for the fancier yep. box. And you think you're getting better cornflakes, but it's the same cornflakes. We just package it differently for a more affluent buyer in order to take advantage of discriminatory pricing. In in free-to-play, unfortunately, because of some mistakes that were made early on, uh, very early on, uh, back in 2001, 2002, uh, we decided to go down a path where the people who spend more actually can disrupt or damage the gameplay of those who spend less, something we call pay-to-win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's a very different animal. And 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 then what's been happening more recently with like EA and such is is where people are are spending money on thinking they're getting certain content, and then that content isn't there, uh, mm-hmm. or it's not there unless they spend a, a huge additional amount. Or like the Star Trek, this mobile uh, Star Trek game I played recently, where they show all these, you know, Federation Klingon and. Uh, um, and uh, Romulan ships. Uh, I played it quite aggressively. I spent a lot of money on it. I actually got over three hundred dollars refunded from Apple because of some. Uh, they were saying they were selling something, and then they weren't actually selling what they said they were selling. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, I was one of the top players in that game. And I never managed to unlock. And I don't know anyone who managed to unlock a single Romulan or, or Federation or Klingon ship before I left. We were all trying to get to that point, but mm-hmm. I think to, to actually have gotten that point you would have to play for a long time and spent thousands of dollars and and that wasn't explained to you know before we got into it so that all seems to be a little deceptive i i i there's there's two ways i there's two major themes that i see going on here one uh one is that is that consumers keep asking for more and expecting more but they also keep asking for the prices to go down Mm. and this is not a, a realistic way to approach it if you want a better product you got to be willing to spend more for it but we want our cake and eat it too so we've put developers under a tremendous amount of pressure if they try to raise the prices like back when prices on mmogs should have been way higher than 15 dollars a month because people were very getting a huge amount of value out of those games and quite willing to spend way more than 15 dollars a month uh if they tried to raise the subscriptions above 15 dollars people had a cow they made a big mm-hmm. deal about it. They made the they made the situation impossible for developers to to raise the prices to have a free market to raise the prices to what they should have been. Uh, so instead, they developers started getting sneaky, and this created all kinds of bad behaviors and and trends in our industry. And now we're complaining about how sneaky developers have gotten, but they did that because of what we did with them. If we had just been more willing to say yes, make this better game will pay for this better game you bring it we'll pay for it then none of this weirdness would have shown up yeah and we can see the same thing in the independent space as well over this past decade indie developers have really risen up in terms of the quality and the amount of content that's going into their games but they still have like that wall in terms of how high they can price them like i've seen on many indie forums like if a game is anything more than 15 dollars 
you will get people complaining saying, why is your game so much? Why isn't this five ninety nine? Or you know, or my fair, you know, this why are you trying to get this amount of money? It doesn't look like um I don't know, uh, Call of Duty. Like, how dare you try to price your game for $24 when I can buy insert AAA game for $30? And Heroes of Might and Magic was $92. Basically, in today's dollars. I mean, and I remember for the SNES era, when I was buying like games for like $80, $90, and that was considered, you know, the normal price for a Super Nintendo game. And yeah, like, I can't even imagine last time I've spent $90 on a game if it wasn't like a collector's edition or something like that. But, yeah, Shark and Chad, like, people, like, $15 to $20 seems to be, like, that bubble for a lot of people I've, I've found for the independent space. And we've seen developers try to price things higher. I know, um, who is it? Uh, John Schaefer's At the Gates retail for $30. Uh, the game uh, Shadow Tactics. It was like a... Uh, Almost like a real-time stealth strategy game. At the gates, got really mixed reviews. Yeah. So I mean, if if they, uh, I I think if it was if it was what everybody was hoping it to be, mm-hmm. thirty dollars would have been a no-brainer. Yeah, and that's always that issue of how do you exactly put a price on a video game? I mean, this is a topic that can. T- this is one of those very complicated topics because of the fact that every game is different. Again, you know, if I paid, uh, if I paid a Edmund McMillan, like you know, price per hour, the amount of time I spent with the buying of Isaac, he would probably be able to retire at this point in terms of how much a lot of people have gotten out of it. But there are people out there who think that, or that the price of a game doesn't really, I think, mesh with what you're getting out of it. And it can be very confusing. Um, Draken and Chat mentioned Celeste. That was the indie game from last year that took home, I think, Game of the Year, game of the year Award. I wonder how, and what is the price of that? It was priced retail at $20. Hmm. And that game looks... And I think going back to what you were saying, Ramin, about how people expect more and want to pay less... That's, that's kind of been what's been going with a lot of these independent games, with developers struggling with the idea of, I need to make an amazing game, but I also have to make it look like it's, you know, $20, $30 more, but I also have to price it at $15 to $20 less at the same time. I, I You know, it's, it's tough. If you don't have a name recognition, then you basically have to, to sell your product at a fraction of what it's worth because yeah. you're... you're you're building name recognition. Yeah. If, if your first game comes out and it's perceived as a huge value, then people will be waiting for your next game mm-hmm. and they'll be willing to spend a lot more and you should make sure you charge a lot more uh, after you've, you've, you've made it with one mm-hmm. game. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, uh, you know, there's also the situation where it's like, if you're going to the, to, uh, to the supermarket and, and you notice that they're in the same situation with like, um, Orange juice. Mm-hmm. Orange juice, the prices of orange juice is skyrocketing, yeah. but people don't want to spend more than a certain amount for orange juice. So they'll just not buy it if they raise the price to what it's worth. So, and now our half gallons of orange juice, 64 ounces in, uh, in the USA, if people are outside the USA listening to this, and it's uh, um, just under two liters. Uh, um, we we take the 64 ounce container and it's now no longer 64 ounces 
it's 59 ounces and maybe the bottom has like a little divot in it <laughs> so, so like it actually holds less fluid but it looks pretty much they designed it so it looks almost identical to the 64 ounce container so visually it tricks you you think you're buying 64 ounces but you're getting 59 ounces but mm. the price hasn't gone up or down mm-hmm. this is the way they charge more and trick you into thinking you're getting the same value you were getting before uh, and there's all these tricks that are going on and uh, that that producers are trying to play to to sell us less and charge us the same mm-hmm. instead of raising the price oh, yeah. instead of just raising the price but they don't want to raise the price and then have somebody else do this trick and undercut them then they lose out so if uh, in a in an environment where 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 you can be dishonest it's hard for an honest sometimes it's hard for an honest developer to compete with a dishonest developer yeah. so it forces everybody to be dishonest and here's an interesting thing that popped up in chat. Um, one person, BP, said games shouldn't cost less than $20 in his opinion. And then Sharky said that while he loves Slay the Spire, he found that $25 felt too high. But he felt $20 was the right price. And that's another one of those very weird things about the game industry. Because many people, including myself here, like even that difference of 5 $6 can push a game into that purchase space for us. And, again, it's that issue of, if I think my game is worth $25, but I may have to sell it for 15 or $18. And, again, as we've said before, like, at some point, you know, the bomb's going to have to fall out here. Because how are you supposed to make a living selling your games at 50 to 70% less than what you think they're worth or what you're expecting to get out of them? Well, a lot of times, like in on Steam, there's an early access price, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's this tendency for the price to actually drop by the time the game goes retail, which actually it should be the other way around. I mean, yeah. you should be rewarding people who got in early with the cheaper price, and the price should be higher at launch. But because so many people of your potential customers have already played it by then, I guess they they don't feel like they should be raising the price at the at that point but if you're if but if you're in early access and your game is hot and it's doing well you should significantly raise your price on on launch yeah. and then hold firm do like what they do with the civilization products and some other games like that where they almost never have sales it mm-hmm. takes them a long time to drop the price because once you start having sales people expect the sales and then won't won't take your retail price seriously anymore yeah and that's one of the things that we saw, especially with the whole, like the kind of like the first wave of Steam sales, when they were having you know eighty, ninety percent off, and anyone who bought it was like, okay, that's amazing. But if you miss that, then it's like, you know, everyone just bought this game for ten dollars. You know, why should I spend fifty dollars on your game? I'll just wait for the next sale. And right, and their their reviews will even mention that they got yep. it on sale and that that you should wait for the next sale. Yeah. Oh yeah. How many Steam reviews of a game have been? I like this game, but wait for it to be five dollars, kind of thing. Right, right, right. And that's damaging to the developer. But they started that by putting sales in. Yep. Once you once you start doing the whole sales thing, then then people anticipate the sale. Yeah. And that's one of the things for a lot of smaller developers who will say that they will refuse to put their game on sale because again they don't want to get that perception that oh if you wait you know at some magical moment will drop a 75% off, you know, for like two days sale on the game. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's one of these things where 
those types of tricks can actually come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, of course, the rise of the whole Humble Bundle and developers putting their games in these bundle editions that, right. again, like you think, oh, I'll sell 10, 15,000 extra copies, but you're really selling at what? Like five cents a copy, two cents a copy. Not only that's being split four or five different ways, like you're not making any money on that, but a lot of people kind of got roped into that like as Humble Bundle started to grow in popularity. Well, so, so one of the key things, and I think the most important things that you can do as a developer to extend the value and the price of your product is to instead of just offering a, a game as a one-off product and then all your work is gone and you've shot your wad, instead make your game uh, a, a service, which is often what we do like in MMOs. We, we create a service, and then people play, and then they tend to spend over time. And and the reason this works is because you're delivering enough content where the person is playing it for a lot of hours. And so if they're playing a lot of hours, then they're willing to spend a lot more money. If you create what, a, what I call a long-tail game where the, the engagement lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been the key to success of all the, the games I've made that you guys may have heard of, is that the, is that the, the games had, play were played for one, two, three years by the participants. So they were spending over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, as I wrote in my um, The Whales Don't Swim in the Desert paper, uh, 2013-14, uh, the, the typical whale doesn't make their first spend until day 21. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, day 21. So, so or was it maybe 19, but in that era, that range. And, and so if you're trying to like, trying to get the person to like make a big spend in the first week, which is, seems to be the, one of the most common mistakes I see with free-to-play mm-hmm. monetization designers as they try to go for the quick sale, that they're signaling to the player that the that the developer doesn't have confidence in their product and that they think you're going to leave quickly uh, by trying to get you to make a quick gotcha sale. Uh, instead, if they, they'll they'll wait to see what the gameplay is like in three weeks because a lot of times they get to three weeks and they've run out of content or the game has become too pay to win or mm-hmm. or, uh, or the or, or similarly become so toxic that people are dropping off and there's very few people to play with. People are not going to invest in a. a at the level that they would if if they're hoping to play for a couple of years if you run out of content within a few within a few weeks so that's why these whales will wait that long to drop the big money uh to see whether you're going to go the distance or not mm-hmm. and, and so if you're going to create games as a service and want to make the real money uh you've got to make a game that can go that distance that can create that type of uh engagement long term and as you were saying a few minutes ago, regarding kind of the tricks developers had to employ, like over this decade, we've seen a kind of a drop off of some of like the more popular single player genres, uh, platformers in particular, because a platformer is not really designed around long term value. Now, of course, when you have a name like Nintendo and Mario attached to it, that preserves that value far longer than, you know, insert generic platformer X title here. And this is kind of what we've seen in terms of the rise of live service games. Even with single-player games these days getting uh, post-release support, uh, new skins, new challenge maps, you name it, that 
those kinds of games lend themselves well to it. But for a lot of like the more traditional single player titles, that those games have kind of disappeared or they become a lot more niche in favor again of developers trying to figure out where can we get those, that extra money out of this game? Well, fast action games tend to uh, appeal by triggering adrenaline release. And adrenaline release is fatiguing. It's not something you can just keep doing. Yeah. You, you, know, you can't play a fast action game and really enjoy it for more than an hour or two, and then you've got to stop and rest. Uh, and, and those types of games will appeal more to younger users than older users because uh, they have a little more energy and don't mind getting wrecked, you know, covered in sweat, doing that type of intense activity for two hours. But an older player is going to be like, no, I just can't do this. Um, so, And the older player tends to have more money. So as soon as you, you make your game very adrenaline-based, you're probably reducing the lifespan of your game and shifting the, demogra- the demographic down younger where there's less money. Uh, so all the games I think that have you know, really created the best value weren't fast action, reflex kind of games. Uh, but the way Nintendo gets past that is they make sure that their games are all multiplayer. Because the social aspect is something that can keep a game going well beyond the actual just thrills of the reflexes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the secret to Nintendo's success is making everything multiplayer. <laughs> yep. And again, Nintendo, of course, has, as you said earlier, they have that brain value that Nintendo games retain that for so much longer. And I mean, these days, like for a lot of us who play Nintendo games, we know that don't be expecting a 75% sale on you know a Mario game. At least not for maybe many, many years down the line. Because Nintendo keeps that value. And Blizzard, for the longest time, has. Although we've been having discussions that may not be so much the case in the future. Well, I think Nintendo also resisted the whole pay-to-win thing for a long Mm -hmm. time in their mobile releases. But I think they finally broke down and let someone talk them into it. And that's come back to bite them. They've actually had some games banned. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is bad press for Nintendo. Yeah. I mean, if, if the regulars are saying they're banning it because they're harmful to children, it's not the type of branding that the Nintendo wants to project. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was a huge mistake for them. Uh, but, you know, enough people tell you this is the way it's supposed to be, then maybe you'll start to believe them. Yep. And uh, Draken and Chat brought up another really good point about, um, did you see the game Devil May Cry 5 that came out? I think it was either late last year or this year. Saw it, but didn't play it. Sorry. <laughs> well, what they did was, a, this is the first time there's an actual in-game shop that you can spend real money on getting the game's currency, the uh, red orbs. And the red orbs are used to buy you know, everything and anything in that title. And for a lot of people, it felt like the game was explicitly tuned to kind of want you to get those purchases. And well, a lot of times they would, yeah, they make the game so hard so that mm-hmm. you can see this is this is um uh this is what what uh, Zynga came up with and was promoting what we call fun pain. Yes, they intentionally make the product uh, in such a way to make the user uncomfortable. And for a price, they'll make you less uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I personally don't like any game where the objective of developers is to make me uncomfortable when I play it. Yeah. 
And especially if I, I'm being held ransom, being told I have to spend a certain amount of money in order to be less uncomfortable. But but even more so, what's a bigger concern for me is that is that I get dopamine when I do something hard mm-hmm. and and have a risk of total failure, but actually succeed anyways. Then I have like a, a Yahoo moment. But if I know already that I can automatically be successful by spending some money, then my mm-hmm. dopamine drops to zero or negative, and I just lose interest in the game completely. Uh, even if I'm not doing it, the fact that I know other people are doing it significantly lowers the amount of dopamine I'm getting and my enjoyment of the game. So as soon as you do that, as soon as you you undermine your own reward system, your own progression system, what's keeping the game interesting in the metagame, then you basically pooched your game. And so, again, you end up with this thing where you're, you have to make your sale in the first week because people are going to lose interest very quickly. They they won't know why. They won't be able to articulate it the way I just did. Yep. They just know that it just doesn't feel exciting anymore. They're not getting their dopamine, and they don't even know that that's mm-hmm. not what they're getting. And yep. they don't even know why they're not getting it, but they're not. Mm-hmm. You can't sell what you're not providing. Yep. And like with Double May Cry 5, like on the same way, Dragon, I went through that entire game... I did not spend one cent on it. I did not need to buy any advantages in it. But for a lot of people, as you said, like when they can, when they sense, like, even if they hint that the game is being tilted against them, you know, the age-old, you know, the casino, uh, you know, the ch- tilting or tweaking the games would be favored for the house. The second somebody even thinks like that is a possibility, even if it's not that game becomes tainted. Again, uh, you mentioned, of course, everybody's favorite term, pay-to-win earlier. Again, every free-to-play game on a Steam forum or any game that has microtransactions, there will be at least 30 threats of people saying, is this game pay-to-win? This game's pay-to-win. Why, you know, this person cheated, so obviously the game's pay-to-win, and you get the picture. Right. I mean, in World of Tanks, uh, Mm -hmm. when people would get uh, hosed in one shot... People would say, "Oh, that that bastard used a you know a, a, a gold round or you know a, a a a premium round that cost them money to shoot me and do extra damage." And and and, and most of the times, no, they just got killed fair and square with no advantage. Uh, but 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 just the chance that you could have been. If yeah. you can't if it, if you don't if you can't be sure whether it was a gold round or not, you'll just assume it was a gold round if you got. Mm-hmm. You got hosed like that because you want to blame it on that instead of saying, "Oh, that person's just a better player than I am." Mm-hmm. So as, as soon as that's even possible, that reduces the fun for everybody. So I, I was very adamant about trying to get uh, that premium ammunition removed when I made uh, World of Tanks Blitz, and I was told, "No, we'll revisit it later," which we didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but but soon I was. In St. Petersburg, working on uh, um, World of Warships, and because I did a good job on World of uh, Tank Splits, and it was out doing much better than we had anticipated, uh, they decided to go ahead and remove the premium ammo like I was recommending, mm-hmm. and that game worked out really well. Uh, and and we didn't have the, you, 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 now now you don't have the people complaining on the you know Steam reviews and stuff that uh, about pay to win mm-hmm. and stuff because there was no pay to win at all in that game it's yep. completely gone mm-hmm. and, that, and that made it much more interesting for people yep. there were other issues but it wasn't but the the issues primarily weren't in the metagame where I was operating yeah and as you said earlier with regards to again trying to get like 
someone to spend more money that if the game feels like it's worth that amount or if you put more into it they'll be more happy to spend it but it's always that push and pull for a lot of people that there are probably people who love the idea of gold ammo in world tanks i know of course uh, wargaming definitely enjoyed having that kind of concept in it and there are people who like to have to be able to buy those little advantages but Again, if it comes at hurting the game as a whole, as we've seen with many people who play free-to-play titles, that if I feel at all like somebody has an advantage that I have no way of getting unless I spend money, again, it becomes, why should I play this game? If my if I can only get like up to here, in terms of my guy, my hand up here, if you can't see it, and then somebody who can spend money gets up to here, and I have no way of getting there, why keep playing? Well, I mean, it's tricky because as a developer, uh, you can measure how much somebody is spending on a pay-to-win item. Mm-hmm. It's harder to measure what someone isn't spending yep. because you put a pay-to-win item in. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's it's most developers would just assume that number is zero, but it's not zero. It, you have a suppressive effect on all the other spend as soon as you pay to pay a win item in. and But you're not measuring that because you have no way of measuring the money that people didn't spend. Yeah. And that actually takes me to another really interesting point. A few weeks ago, I got, for like the first time, I got to play For Honor, which um, I think, do you remember that game from Ubisoft? That came, I think it was like two years ago, two, three? No. It was kind of like a, a more, it was a... a combat focus on like sword play so close range combat uh, knights vikings and like uh, chinese and japanese kind of uh, warfare so it has a kind of like a moba play to in a weird sense so um ubisoft ran into a lot of trouble with the microtransactions they were called out for the fact when you first played the game that it had of course you can grind to unlock new gear new swords whatever but it would take an estimate, I think, three years of grinding to get what someone could spend, like, 2 to $3 for a piece. So the version that I play, like, this is the one that was just very weird. They announced that the game was going to be free. So I had the quote-unquote free version of the game. And what they did was all the prices for all the unlocks was uh, multiplied by, I think, 5 or 10 times what they would have normally been if you bought the game, even if you bought the game on sale for $5, it would still be cheaper than if you just play their free-to-play version. And the people, Ubisoft and other developers mm-hmm. that hire monetization designers, mm-hmm. really most of these people are just people. Uh-oh. Uh, you cut out there, Ramin. Are you still there? Uh-oh. I know this is not on, this is not on my fault, people. Uh-oh. Somebody must have heard Ram... I think Ubisoft heard uh, Ramin talking. Yeah. Uh-oh. Hope his uh, laptop didn't lose power again. Uh, let me see. Wait. Couldn't have run out of power that quickly. We didn't even get to hour four yet. Alright. 
We'll see if he, he should come back, I hope. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> and he'll be in a, a corporate office, too, instead of on his uh, balcony or his porch. And this time wasn't even my fault. <laughs> yeah, like the whole, again, like the CCG aspect is just very awkward, I think, in terms of like getting people to spend money on it. I know we had that whole conversation, Shark, about $5. That's what I need to do for these casts. Like going forward, you want to talk to me? It's $5 every 10 minutes. If you don't pay, the stream will start to get cut off. Mm-mm. All I have to worry about are the dozens of Amiibos uh, tracking my every move from Nintendo. That's why we never say anything bad about Nintendo on these casts. <laughs> but yeah, like, the value, again, like, if you start selling everything, at, you have to get a very established... Exactly. That's how I'll solve my financial problems. Everyone must pay five... <laughs> we'll have a countdown in the upper right. You know, your time's almost up. Please insert five dollars and keep watching and to keep talking. <laughs> uh -uh. Will Ramin come back? Oh no, I got it. This is just like the Harry Potter free-to-play game. Ramin can't connect to the internet. You must spend uh, $10 to get him back online. Quick. Uh-oh. Uh, he left the call. Or he... He left the call, I should say. Uh-oh. Uh, I'll see if I can entertain the troops. We'll see if he comes back. <laughs> yeah, like... Trying to, I hopefully he comes back because I want to talk to him about this more with having pricing on the <laughs> microtransaction side because that in of itself is its own unique quagmire. <laughs> we need a Rami and Shark on at the same time. Exactly, Draken. <laughs> uh. Let's see. Maybe he is on LinkedIn. Let's see. No. Oh no. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I could just sit out and have both of you guys talk. And the dragon never get that fried chicken he wanted, too. Whew. Alright, let's see. He is offline, so, uh-oh. Oh, he didn't, like, kick his, uh, yay, at least, at least something successful happened today. Hopefully he didn't like accidentally like, kick his modem or something, or he, he didn't drop the laptop. Mm -mm. Or Ubisoft got to him.
Man, it's allergy season for real here. Mm. Let's see. But yeah, like the whole idea of that sweet spot of any pricing is very tough, or even just game pricing in general. I wouldn't even need to be there, Shark. I could just go make something to eat. And then come back and you guys would still be talking. <laughs> I need... I think that's what I need going for. I need, like, the... I know, like, the taxi cab. Like, the fare going up. Like, every minute of talking on a cast goes up, like, goes 75 cents, $1.50, $4. And then everyone has to pay to keep that price down. If it gets too high, the stream shuts off. <laughs> Yeah, I'm allergic to outside. I think that's why I say at this point. But yeah, like the value, again, like getting that sweet spot. Because I really want to talk to him about the whole 2D, 3D misconception. Because like what Draken was saying earlier, people will automatically discount 2D games. You know, how dare you price a 2D game at $30 or more? You know, why should I spend... $30 on a 2D Metroidvania when I can spend $40 on a AAA open world uh, fully 3D experience. Mm-hmm. What are the addition tiers on the... Uh, let's see. What was the game that I just saw people were complaining about addition tiers on? Not Gears of War? Was it that? Uh, let's see. No, that's not it. It's probably another Ubisoft game. There, that's perfect. You have unlocked three seconds of watching Josh. Please spend more money. And then when you get the big one, like the screen like shakes and there's all these graphics. You unlocked four hours of time. Could be Borderlands. Let's see. I can't spell Borderlands right now. Okay, what do we have here? Is that it? Okay, here it is. Oh, I can go on. Oh, wait. I see Ramin. There's a Ramin wandering in. <laughs> uh, I see him. Oh. Am I back in? Yep. What happened? <laughs> I was texting you on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, the sun came out. It's over 100 degrees outside. And the sun came out, and my laptop is black, and it was oh. shining on my laptop, and it literally just shut down and said, no way. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I literally put my laptop in the freezer for two minutes. <laughs> Hope I didn't melt all my ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was worried that uh, Ubisoft got to you. <laughs> yeah, it pulled the plug on me. <laughs> no, but, no, seriously. So back to what I was saying is, is – uh, you know, all these games are made on Excel spreadsheets. 
Mm-hmm. And and if you're good at supposedly at monetization, you're an Excel whiz. So mm-hmm. a decision like this is if you want to be sneaky and say, oh, our game is free, but they charge exactly what you were paying before. Mm-hmm. You just remove the upfront price and multiply the microtransaction price. And on an Excel spreadsheet, it all looks like it breaks even. Mm-hmm. Maybe even you make a little bit more money. The problem is, is that when you're not honest with people and, and, when, you, and when you actually do like an A-B test like this, where you actually do get the numbers before and then test it with the numbers afterwards, then you're able to see the missing money, the money that you're able to see the money that, that wasn't spent. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't measure money that isn't spent unless you do a true AB test where you can see how much were people spending before and then you change something and then you see the difference. And so here what'll happen is they'll they do exactly what you just described where they make it free up front and charge you more for the microtransactions. And then, lo and behold, even though it all looked good on their Excel spreadsheet, people spend less money. Yeah. And then the game isn't successful. And, and like, the thing about For Honor was, like, this was during when Epic was doing their free uh, giveaway of the game, like, the actual, you know, price version of it. So what I did was, after that stream was over, I went to Epic, I bought the the. Oh, I got the free version of it. I tied to my UPlay account. I really reloaded up for honor, and lo and behold, all the pricing is now like ten to fifteen times cheaper because now my account says it's a the retail version of it. And mm-hmm. as you said, like when people find that stuff out, it really makes it less likely they're going to spend money because now they're seeing the man behind the curtain. They know that something is not legitimate going on. Yeah, and you've seen this a lot with the A's products recently because the A has uh, been a fairly obvious example where they're using these uh, these these dark techniques to try to trick people into spending uh, amounts that weren't disclosed up front. Mm-hmm. And, and when you go to a supermarket, I mean, it's cheesy to have to spend the same price for something that's 59 ounces. It should be 60. But at least there's still a price tag on it. And, the, and if you look carefully... The number of fluid ounces or whatever is actually on the. But here, all these prices are being hit, hidden from us. So it's 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 not an ethical gray zone. It's truly in an unethical state for where we've come, uh, especially our biggest players. When when they signal that that they're willing to use unethical business practices, clearly unethical, not not gray zone unethical, then uh, they create a space where. Again, if you if you have to if you have to compete and someone else is allowed to break the rules, then you have to break the rules too if you want to compete fairly. And so this pulls everyone mm-hmm. into this this dark hole abyss of of just uh, bad relationships with consumers between developers and consumers. Mm-hmm. And and this is very damaging to trust. And without that trust, uh, who's going to spend? Hundred bucks on a game up front. Yeah, uh, you know, if, if people like Apple products and they're consistently good, then you'll get a line six blocks long waiting for the new Apple product because they know you're not going to short them. Yeah. If, the- if if your if your Blizzard product is always super hot, people will pay six months in advance a premium mm-hmm. for your Blizzard product before it even comes out until 
somebody does something wonky with Diablo three and breaks the chain <laughs> and no longer, and now your your products aren't golden anymore. Yeah. Well and again with Nintendo. Again, how many people are gonna buy Nintendo games sight unseen just on the name of Nintendo? They will until they start pulling too much of this yeah. same sort of stuff on their mobile games and start to develop a, a mixed reputation. Yeah. And now, uh, keeping with that conversation about kind of the people's trust in a product, uh, we were just bringing up in chat about Apex Legends, and that kind of was the uh, motivation for our chat today, or at least part of it. That, again, Ape, the developers got into a lot of trouble with having a microtransaction, I think it was like, you have to spend, if I remember right, you have to open up the loot boxes, but it's there are no repeats, but the highest grade item will not drop unless you have all the other items previously. So it end up being like $125 to get one cosmetic item in a game. Well, I knew in advance before the game came out, <laughs> from just watching the ads and, and mm-hmm. talking to briefly with the developer that um, they they didn't have a metagame designer on that project and they were basically just going to save time and money by not having a metagame designer on that project uh, so I actually I actually told my my godson to short EA stock <laughs> based on uh, based on that information which is all public information I didn't use any insider information <laughs> I wasn't it and it was an inappropriate, in, you know, uh, advice to my godson. So he was able to make some money shorting EA stock, and uh, um, unfortunately, that's this is all too common because uh, indie game design is very new. Uh, it's um, it's very technical because it's not just about Excel. It's a lot more about neuroscience actually and behavioral economics than it is about uh, an Excel spreadsheet, uh, and and developers are so used to not spending for that role that they don't really want to spend for that role. Yeah. So they 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 cut corners and they come out with products that are that look high quality and aren't, uh, and then they don't perform well. They consistently don't perform well, such that I can advise my own family members to you know to short a stock and make money, and it's not like I'm. It's not like it's a risk for me to give that advice, yeah. um, uh, because these products won't make money. They're, they're they're a huge investment, and they they just it's just like when you try to make a game without a programmer, would you try to make a game without a graphic artist, uh, would you try to make a game without a marketer? Modern games, you know, the, the, we're at the place now where people expect more than just basic gameplay if you want to have gameplay as a service. There's got to be a metagame that connects it all together yeah. that makes it interesting to play over the long term. Yeah. And so if you want to make a game as a service, you need a metagame designer. If you decide not to hire a metagame designer, you better try to make your money in the first week. Check people and spending because they're going to lose interest over that. Yeah. And like as we've said before, when we talk about kind of the golden age of the MMO genre over the last decade that a lot of those games had very extensive value over the long run due to I think I'm hearing myself or I'm hearing some feedback there. Um, test, test? Okay. You're hearing me through, through my computer? 
I think I was hearing myself through yours. I'm not sure. And, and, um, I took my headphones off because uh, I want to plug in my cooler base. <laughs> um, but like a lot of the MMOs that came out were, again, as we said before, were de developed around uh, consumer-driven uh, content, something that keeps people playing for hours and hours or months and months ahead without needing more actual developer content. But it's been that kind of design has kind of fallen by the wayside these days, again, in favor of let's just release a new skin or let's have a new event where people have to spend thirty, fifty dollars, et cetera, and et cetera. Um you can't go to school anywhere in the world to learn metagame design. Yeah. This is a real problem for game developers because one, they don't even know what metagame design is. They, so they don't even know how, what questions to ask when they're trying to hire for the position. So what ends up happening is they either leave the position unfilled, like mm -hmm. they did on Apex Legends, or they hire somebody that says, oh yeah, I know how to do metagame design mm -hmm. with no evidence of being able to do metagame design because they're just catfishing. Because yeah. uh, if you have, if you have 50 roles for that position worldwide and maybe three or four people who can do it, then what you're going to end up having is 50 positions worldwide, three or four people who can do it, and two or 300 people who say they can do it. Because yeah. no one's going to want to not have that job. Oh, yeah. And once you've managed to get hired, you can say you were in that job. Mm-hmm. And then that helps you get hired again. And, and once they've hired somebody in a role that they're not qualified for, and this happens way, way more than, than you would even imagine. The, the, all the people who were responsible for the hire don't want to admit that they made a bad hire because that could get them fired. Oh, yes. And then it's, a, it's expensive to hire somebody. I mean, you've got to find our fees. You have to pay recruiters. There's onboarding. There's relocation. I mean, it, it, could, be, it could be getting close to $100,000 before the person even starts working. So if you brought somebody in and then and then your choice is to lay them off and maybe look all over again for somebody who probably doesn't exist or just keep them on and fake it. They're just going to keep them on and fake it. And yeah. I, I've actually had I've actually had from from major developers that everyone not only everyone here but even people who aren't gamers know the name of some of these people that that have, have had the person, the catfish has contacted me and asked me to subcontract through the catfish to do their work for them so mm. that they wouldn't get fired and for me to keep it secret. <laughs> mm. It's happened. Yep. Very major developer. It happened. Yeah. I have a and story. They're paying, they're, they're paying him enough that it was worth for him to pay me to do his work. Yeah. I have a story similar for when I worked at Comcast, but that's a topic for another day along those lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, when it comes to these kinds of systems, like you said, like, many people don't really understand it. Like, it's not something, and when we talk about game design, it's not, like, from a the philosophy standpoint, it's not something you can just, you know, put everyone in front of a computer and say, make the next Mario. Or, here's $100,000, make Fortnite, but with pirates, or Fortnite with more zombies, or anything like that. There's you know a they're trying to do that, though. Which one, the zombies or the pirates? No, 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 no. I mean, they're trying to do exactly what okay. they're trying to do. Yeah. Let's just 
take something that's worked before and just change one little thing and hope it flies. Yep. Without and, realizing why it worked in the first place. Exactly. And that is where the design comes in. And again, why Blizzard has always, has for the longest time been one of the top tier developers. Because they understand why these games work. They knew, they were able to look at why MMOs were popular and we got World of Warcraft. They experimented with tabletop CCGs. We got Hearthstone. And having that eye to it is worth its weight in gold. But again, it's something everyone can say they're an expert at, but very few can actually prove. Well, I mean, they they got really upset at me the last time I was flown out to Irvine to talk to Blizzard, and I told them that I didn't think that their latest products were very well designed. <laughs> uh, they got very upset with me because that's not what they were expecting somebody looking to get it hired there <laughs> to say. Uh, but I mean, what's Blizzard continues to, to thrive on not only their reputation, but extremely high production values at a time when uh, there aren't that many AAA games being made anymore. Uh, people have lost so much money in AAA that, that the competition has really dropped off. Uh, but, but Blizzard is not innovating like they used to be. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. they're, just, they're just relying on high quality to bring, to bring in the, the players. Uh, you're, you're the real and, and what players most want they don't want to see the same game with a little twist because they get bored they're, they're, they really need fresh content just like in a movie there mm-hmm. are people don't uh, it's very rare if somebody will just go to the movies and watch the same movie 14 times yeah. I mean I did with Star Wars but that was a totally <laughs> exceptional case back in 1977 and I'm totally mm-hmm. dating myself <laughs> dating myself here but I mean uh, but uh, but normally people don't just go and see watch the same movie and over again they, they want new content and they want mm-hmm. new content in their games and uh, that requires taking risks that means not using data-driven design to make the same game over and over again instead innovative and in, in, in taking risks then mm-hmm. developers don't want to take risks yeah unless we see it from the independent space and again we've seen many experimental and risky games come from indies and there's a whole conversation about trying to make a game that's also appealing that's not only risky but can also appeal to people but that's i think another topic like that may be a little bit off topic for our talk today you but, can see Tencent went on a shopping spree and came in, and they've been looking for all the best indies and buying them up. And so did Microsoft. Uh, from last E3, I think the E that just came, like they announced they bought several more studios. I think they picked up Double Fine as one of the big mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, they're not. They're not in. I, I've. I've. I worked. I did the first in-house uh, free-to-play game for Microsoft uh, Project Spark, um, but they're not real big about in-house development they'd much rather mm-hmm. find third-party talent and 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 promote it mm-hmm. uh they see themselves more as a platform or supporter mm-hmm. uh not as like an in-house designer it's just not the path that they want to go down i think it's more efficient just to, to mm-hmm. nurture that talent elsewhere mm-hmm. and they're doing and that works uh, let me see. And uh, going back to, I think, something like Apex Legends, um, like keeping with that topic for a second, again, when it comes to pricing this stuff out, like, again, like, this is what we were saying at the beginning, like, this one question could be a massive part of this cast. Like, how do you put a price tag on content when everybody has their own interpretation of that content? You know, a, a sword skin in one game could be $2.00 while a giant ship in another game could be six dollars. 
Well, because it's not about the content. It's about the context. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not what the content looks like or even necessarily what it does. It's how does it affect your target, which is the human brain. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't understand the human brain, you're not going to be able to predict how this or that item is going to trigger effects in the human brain, whether it's going to be attractive to the human brain. So to, do, to answer that question, you either have to go you know, forward in time, get the data and come back and give it to us, or uh, you have to copy something that's already been done, which is going to result in a poor result, or uh, you just have to guess and do something a thousand times and see what works and what doesn't without knowing the neuroscience. But really, if you're making products for the human brain, you should have people who understand how the human brain works. Mm -hmm. And then you can make products that are are very high value to consumers, even if they don't understand why they're high value. And they'll spend a lot of money, even if they don't understand why they're spending a lot of money. And, uh, and then the developer makes a lot of money, even if they don't understand why they're making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dragon has a good question. Where was the sense in Activision selling a, a red dot site in one of their Call of Duty games as a microtransaction? <laughs> you know... <laughs> You know, the, as I explained to the to the data scientists at Blizzard when I was last there, this this is how this this works. You you normally a developer would just take a pile of poop and throw it up against a wall and see if it sticks. If it doesn't, they throw another pile of poop on the wall and they see if it sticks. And they keep doing this until something sticks. When you bring data scientists in. Now you load up this huge shit cannon and you just fill the whole wall with a thousand pieces of shit and you see which ones stick. And this is how data science works in games. You, you do everything on such a massive scale with automation that you can then see this process of trial and error. But the thing is, this, this doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that any of them will stick. I mean, it's just like if I took, Josh, if I took you, and tried to throw you at the moon. <laughs> and I failed the first time. And I was like, oh shoot, I need to keep trying. So I end up like throwing you at the moon like <laughs> four million times, hoping that eventually you'll make it. I'll just throw you in different ways or you know, using different catapults or something, right? It's thinking I'll eventually get there. Well, <laughs> we haven't gone to the moon too many times. The reason is it took just a ridiculous amount of resources and preparation and it, and even even we did it at relatively low tech but the amount of resources it took to do it low tech back in the 60s was just we've done movies on it to talk about it, just how mind-blowing mm -hmm. the complex uh, and huge that that project was but but it all depended on science if we had tried to launch a, you know a, a rocket that was like one percent of our gross national product uh and, and just hope it would work and and if it didn't we went oh shoot let's try again no 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 one would have nope. tried that again if it blew up yeah i mean and so many things could have gone wrong so so everything had to be engineered with fail safes backups lots of science and 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 and, and you can't just we're trying to make very like we're trying to make very sophisticated games without hiring any scientists mm-hmm and this is just not the way it worked when we did the moonshot. And if you're going to make a big game, you're going to be an expensive game. If you're starting to push like 100 million plus in your budget, mm -hmm. 
then you should hire qualified people. Yeah. And that's not, and that isn't necessarily the people that we used 10 years ago. Definitely. And as we've seen with more developers trying to push into that games as a service or the live service aspect and not really grasping what that means, it's almost akin to like EA, uh, EA's mandate to Anthem and trying to make that or make Bioware make a very action gameplay focused title, which they're not really known for. Bioware's games have always been more on the storytelling narrative side of things. And asking them to make a third-person looter-shooter kind of design, you're basically asking, you know, it's like the whole square peg into a round hole scenario. They're, they're basically making movies for computers. Mm-hmm. Interactive movies. But, and that, that, that worked initially. And I think it was done very well in Borderlands. Uh, but if you want to make games of service, there's a lot more going on there. It's very complex. And and you're not going to figure that out by accident. You're not yeah. going to figure that out with six data scientists and a shit cannon. You just it, 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 you can do that all day, all year. You won't get there. Mm-hmm. You won't get any closer to the moon. Yep. Because what you're missing is a scientist. A data scientist is not a scientist. A data scientist is an engineer. Yep. And... For a lot of these, again, like we talked about this a few times ago regarding the MMO crash. How many developers try to be the next Blizzard or the next, or I'm sorry, next World Warcraft, the next EverQuest, again, without really understanding why those games succeeded? So we'll just try they to make. Their shirts. They all lost their shirts. Oh, yes. The, we'll make EverQuest by, with Lord of the Rings. We'll make EverQuest with uh, Star Trek, The Matrix, uh, again, so on, so on. And nobody was really grasping what the amount of work that went into making World of Warcraft. And as you said, they all lost. I, I, I know developers personally on all those projects, so I, I don't want to be yeah. mean to any of them. But but really, you know, just copying World of Warcraft and hoping it would be successful when already World of Warcraft was struggling for a number of reasons at the time it was being copied and not realizing, you know. Uh, <laughs> That too uh, meant you, you should. They sh- the the copycats should not have entered without solving the problems that World of Warcraft was having first. And yep. Blizzard couldn't solve those problems. Mm-hmm. So why would those new people think they were going to solve those problems? Yeah. Did they even notice the problems, or do they just think again? If I can get ten percent of World of Warcraft's audience, I'll be rich. Well, yeah. uh, IGE came in mm-hmm. and got more, made more money than than <laughs> Blizzard did off of Blizzard's games. Yeah. Oh yes, the whole rise of the gold farming and that kind of thing. And and I don't know if you know, but IGE uh, got bought by Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I did not no, know seriously. that. Yes, I mean, and 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 uh, and uh, you know who they sent to run IGE? Goldman Sachs, who's Goldman Sachs? Uh, Goldman Sachs sent a guy in to run IGE to 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 organize all the collection of assets that were being farmed from gamers worldwide. You know who that guy was? They sent in. Yeah. Some guy named Steve Bannon. Oh no. Is this name familiar uh, to you? Yes, yes, it is. This mm. guy ended up learning a lot about psychology and 
consumers and how to manipulate people by running IGE. <laughs> mm, Again, as they always say, truth is stranger than fiction. It isn't it amazing? And here I was battling the IGE. Now I'm realizing that this person, Steve Bannon, I was battling would end up becoming more famous for other reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, more similar reasons than you can imagine, though. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the cast is going to go some very strange places today, people. <laughs> but... Um, uh, going back to the idea of the value of games, and again, this idea of copycats, that like it's the same thing in the independent space, that many people will latch on to a popular genre or popular game and then try and make their own take on it. I saw this with FTL. How many FTL likes were released? Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. I guess as a very good point, the fact that Slay the Spire did well, we're now seeing more uh, deck-building style roguelikes or RPGs. So I'm, I'm happy at least on that one. Yeah, I mean, Slay the Spire was a really great game. Mm-hmm. And and there, yeah, yeah, there are dozens of copycats now of Slay the Spire. And a few of them are actually good. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of them are they're actually taking years to develop them to make sure that they have, they're as good or better as Slay of the Spire. And that's that's great. I mean, I can see them going through early access and working their way through. Uh, most of them are not as good as Slay of the Spire, so what's the point? I'd just rather play Slay of the Spire. Yeah. Um, but I'll be like to see if people can improve upon that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the cast, I think I have two major topics, and then I'll see if you have anything else you want to discuss, Ramin. For the people watching us live, if you have any questions for us, uh, definitely feel free to get them in in the comments below. But one thing that came up while we were having the whole uh, laptop issue that I wanted to touch on, if, uh, going back again to the value of video game, is 2D versus 3D. Because even though there have been plenty of great 2D-style games, many people still heavily discount 2D in terms of price. That 2D game, can't you can't have a $50, $60 2D game these days. Because, again, why should I spend that amount of money on a 2D game when I get it as a, th- a fully 3D title for around that same amount of money? I don't know. A 3D title just means you have to have a bigger rig to run it, and it means you're probably not going to be playing mobile like I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's it's. I actually see 3D as a disadvantage in a lot of ways. All the games that I'm I'm most interested in are are, are 2D with very very good 2D graphics in some cases, but really the the graphics aren't really what pull me into a game. What pulls me into a game is mm-hmm. if it's going if I'm really going to be playing at hardcore like I did it with Ways History, is the multiplayer. Uh, yeah, how, what type of connections am I building with people? Am I building friendships? What are the teams like? Uh, how uh, Is it fair? Is it free to play? This is the type of stuff that's going to make me really play long-term and spend big big bucks. And that has nothing to do with graphics. Mm-hmm. Graphics is what gets you gets you in your foot in the door to the consumer. But that's a big price to pay to get your foot in the door to the consumer. And again, if if... I would love to see somebody make that type of quality presentation and then make a metagame that can back it up. But the people who the people who build these games are good at graphics and don't understand the rest of game development. Mm-hmm. So you end up with a game that looks great but then falls flat. Yep. Um, you know, every you know, the whoever's running a studio does focuses on whatever they're good at. 
and that and they tend to, to not um, look out there to see what they're missing. Uh, and, and I get it. I mean, it's hard to even interview if you don't even know what questions to ask because you don't even yep. don't even know enough about what the role is. I mean, if if you want to hire a programmer, you make sure there's a programmer in the loop to ask the programmer questions about programming so you can do that. But if you've never hired a metagame designer, how do you interview a metagame designer? How do you know they're not just bullshitting you? Same thing about game design. How do you know somebody actually understands why a certain game does well, or they've just spent you know 200 hours playing Call of Duty or whatever, and that's their whole experience? A, a game designer traditionally is just somebody who's played a lot of games, knows how to identify the different pieces and make the design, and then can the more pieces they know, the more they can shuffle around to make a new puzzle, yep. like puzzle pieces. But 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 this works for fairly simple games. When you start getting into games as a service and games that will last a long time, that have a lot of social connections and such, that, that's that stuff that you, that those pieces are very rare in the labor pool. People who know how to do that stuff to connect the stuff, uh, and, it, and it requires a lot of education. Which is uh, our industry is almost has a phobia about education mm-hmm. because initially. It was who you knew, not what you knew. And, and we actually look down on people who go to school for game design. We don't think they're as good as people who actually do it. Uh, um, but there's, but this is increasingly a technical thing. It's a, increasingly a very scientific uh, a thing. It's just like if you were trying to build a car, a car has thousands of parts. And if even one is wrong, your car is going to get recalled. Could even hurt people, and it could be a turd. So it's a very technical process. In the beginning, it was pretty simple. You just slapped a bunch of stuff together, and you launched it, and it didn't matter. But as the industry evolved, there was a lot more science involved. If you look at the yes. cars we were making in the United States 20 or 30 years ago, I mean, our production quality and our technology was, was crap. And, and we stopped investing in the science of it. And so... The Japanese and others and the Germans kept investing science, and they ended up making much better cars than we did. And we almost completely lost auto, the automotive industries in the United States utterly because we were so far behind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we're at now. We had this huge, we had this huge dominance using low-tech methods, and now we're we're just thinking we can continue to cruise that way. A lot, and a lot of times led by people who were a big deal 10, 20, sometimes even 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they haven't adapted, but our, but our competitors have. I mean, I, you know I've written over 100 pa- papers on this, and, you, and you've you know, done so many podcasts. Mm-hmm. I'm not that well-known in the United States. Your American readers, a lot of the ones that chat, come in and look at your podcast when you interview me, probably don't even know who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm actually pretty well known in in Europe and in Asia. Uh, very well known in those areas. Uh, even though I don't really spend that much time in those, those areas. Mm-hmm. My stuff gets translated over there. The reason being is they are hungry to learn the technology. They, mm-hmm. they want to compete with the United States and grab market share. They want to be the next big deal. And so they're, they're studying everything they can in order to do that, 
here, once we get it in a position, we just kind of assume we'll be able to keep it. And that's increasingly not the case. So you're seeing the layoffs all over the place. It's, it's too expensive to make games in the United States. There's got to be a very compelling reason to make a, a game in the US, USA now, uh, or mm -hmm. it's just not a very good investment. Yeah. You, you can, 15 cents on a dollar, you can make a game in Asia or in Europe. I mean, a lot of my audience, too, I've gotten a lot of developers I've spoken to lately have found me outside the United States. I've spoken to hmm. several developers from Poland. Um, I think I have a few African developers as well. Um, again, Europe. I even know someone from Jamaica who's trying to make hmm. a living making games. And yet, they reach out to me. Like, I, I think I'm the same way. I think I'm more recognized outside the United States these days. I know definitely more recognized, you know, not in my home state than I am everywhere else. Because those, because those people are hungry. Mm -hmm. They're just like uh, Steve Jobs said. You know, the key to success is uh, uh, staying hungry and staying foolish. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have that drive, that willingness to fail, and yeah. to keep trying, and to and to and to keep going, and and to keep bettering yourself in order to be successful in in, in an industry this competitive. Oh, yeah. uh, and I don't often see that that often in in the USA. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that, but I but I am. <laughs> and uh, what you were just saying regarding like the science that goes into this kind of stuff, it's the same thing when it comes to game development. That like it's actually going to be in my second book that I have coming out in a few months, where I talked about kind of the underlying mechanics and structures of platforming. Like the platformer genre is a bread and butter genre. It's something that a lot of people consider it to be like the simple genre. You know, it's the like if we're going back to the car analogy, it's basically like you're making like a, a skateboard or like a the old what was it a, like in the fifties when people like put like a like a board and like a like a little like hand scooter or something for a vehicle. But there's a lot that goes into the platformer genre in terms of making it work. And when we say this, we're not talking about feelings or the art side. We're talking about understanding the hard values of what it means to make a character who can jump, making that feel right in the player's hands. And as you say, like when it comes to like people who kind of look down on education and that kind of thing, many developers, I've seen this on many like Facebook groups, uh, forums, stuff like that, they will look down on anyone trying to put rules or put standards when it comes to these designs, thinking that it will stifle the creative process. Or, you know, you didn't, you know, you went to school for this. You didn't do it in the trenches like I did. But as you were saying earlier with, again, like shooting somebody to the moon, that if you make 50 different platformers and all of them fail and you don't understand why they fail, somebody could come in who, with that understanding and make one and it works right off the bat. And that's not right. magic. That's not, you know, you know, that's you're not, not selling your soul. That's understanding the science there. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I, I hit up pretty much, I hit more bases than I thought today. I, I did certainly didn't think I was going to be talking to Steve, Steve Bannon. Uh, but uh, do, you, do you have more that you want to go over? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, um, I think BP, who arrived late, he asked a few minutes ago, what do you mean by using neuroscience for studying games and building games? Well, you're, you, want to, you want the person to feel good when they're playing. 
and you want them to continue to feel good without fatiguing. Uh, uh, if we just try to stim people, which a lot of our technology does these days, then that stim actually fatigues people and makes them le less healthy over time. This is a big part of the talk I'm giving at PAX West, is how our over-reliance on, on stimulation actually can harm the consumer. There's, there's at least four internally produced chemicals that I attempt to modulate when I make a game design. Uh, those are uh, um, adrenaline, uh, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins. And I've written various articles talking about all these things. Uh, and mostly individually, because it can get quite very complex when you start mixing them. But ultimately, if you want to make a, a game that continues to make a person feel good over a long period of time without fatiguing or harming the user, then you're going to need to know how to ration, not only stimulate the release of these chemicals, but also ration them and alternate them in a certain ways such that uh, it's, a, it's done in a sustainable way. And, uh, and no data scientist is going to figure this out by accident. It's just too complex. So you, you, again, it's just like you have to have somebody who knows how to knows rocket science in order to make a rocket to go to the moon. You're not going to figure it out by accident. It's just too complex, <laughs> and it would just be too expensive to do that by accident. Yeah, uh, trying to do you know a thousand tests, it, even a thousand tests would still fail. You'd just be throwing your money away. Yeah. And that is the. That last point is a very big one when it comes to independent developers who will spend months, if not years, on uh, concepts and prototypes of a game. And if they all fail, that is time and money that you will never get back. And again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, yes, you can't experiment but you still need some kind of formal understanding of what you're experimenting with, or again, you're just throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that one of these will be the next Fortnite or the next Minecraft, or and so on. I got my start as a physiologist. I was actually Olympic. I was the Olympic trainer when in '88 when we set a bunch of world records for the women's team, and uh, so my background was in physiology, neuroscience. And I did a bunch of neuroscience research at the Brain Research Institute at UCLA. And then I ended up going to uh, the Betty Ford Center and working there for three years, helping people with drug addiction. And then that was after studying mechanisms of addiction at the subcellular level at the Brain Research Institute. I, I never imagined I was going to go into computer games as a, as a, as a, a, a career. But really, understanding mechanisms of addiction was priceless technology for learning how to make computer games uh, and and then I end up getting involved in this, the whole idea of game economics and developing the field of game economics. I went back to school to study economics properly at the age of 41 and I end up working in the game industry hopping from project to project learning everything I could learn about how they were making these games and what was working and what was not working and I did. I was working full time or double full time in the game industry for eleven years before I was paid my first dollar. That's the level of preparation and education I had to 
to do in order to leapfrog to the place I'm at now to do the kind of very technical stuff I do now. Uh, if I had to stop at one place and work and work on one project for years, I wouldn't have been learning all the stuff that was going on worldwide mm -hmm. and learning the, the technology and developing the technology that I that I carry with me now. Uh, but but see, that's the same type of, uh, of motivation you're seeing in some of these third world countries where people are, are studying everything they can, uh, even if they're not being paid to study it, uh, in order to improve their chances of being successful in life. And that and and that type of motivation, I think, used to be more common here in the United States. I think we're we're just so overstimulated as a society. There's so many distractions that it's hard to put those down and focus so intensely on something like what I'm describing here in order to be assuredly successful at it. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing or similar to what I've had to do with game wisdom. That when I started this like formally seven years ago. All I knew what I would do was just write on a blog. That was it. That was my entire skill set. And over the last seven years, I had to grow in terms of doing public speaking, podcasting, audio and video editing. I do the thumbnails with Photoshop now. I'm editing things in Premiere. I'm doing my presentations with PowerPoint. I'm now even doing more in terms of marketing and PR with reaching out to libraries and schools about doing presentations. And again... If I, like like yourself, if I just stopped at one thing, where would I be right now? Or where would I even be going? How, how many people told you you were wasting your time? Oh, a lot of them. Yeah. How, how many people said, you're never going to make a living doing that? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many people, including family members, oh, told, yes. me, told me, you're wasting your time. You will never make what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I actually make a lot of money. So uh, that I, you know, I certainly proved the, that them wrong, but uh, I couldn't have guessed that. I was taking a huge risk. Oh, yeah. I could have just totally. I could have wasted those eleven years and had nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. I, I just had to be willing to to take the risk and and become so overly educated that mm -hmm. I knew once I finally got my chance that I would do well. Yeah, but yeah. It, even getting that chance was really hard. Oh yeah. And like I'm definitely not at the point where I can say I'm living off of what I'm doing, but I would say that with this year, with the book and the presentations, I'm probably closer. I'm probably closer than I ever have been, and I'm hoping that by the end of this year, I'll be able to actually say that with everything that I've done, that yes, I'm able to live off of this. But again, like you just said. It takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of people saying no, and you have to say yes. Well, this industry is a lot like Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Look how many people never make it in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and the people who did were just were just almost insanely uh, motivated and self believing uh, that they just refused to give up. And and even then, ninety plus percent of people with that motivation level still failed. Yep. I don't know. I saw the, the you know, it was, it, was, it was interesting to see Tarantino's thoughts on just how brutal uh, Hollywood is in his latest movie. I would love to see somebody do a movie like that about the gaming industry. Mm hmm. Yep. And again, like, all these titles are bringing up. We could spend like two to three hours, like, each, like, trying to get into them here. <laughs> um, I guess here's my last question for you regarding, like, the value of games. And then. 
if you don't have any or we only anything from the chat, I think we'll wrap it up here. And unless we want to just go into like other topics for today. No, no, I, I got to go to pack. I'm flying out. Yes, yeah. I don't want you to miss your plane. <laughs> but um, um, here's my final question. This is something that we've talked about a little bit on previous casts. It's the idea, like as you said at the start, that people are willing to spend money if there's value there. Like, do you want to buy something that's going to be cheap and break apart for like $3? Or do you want to spend $10, $15 and get something that you know is going to at least last? Or at least, like, that's kind of like how my family is. Like, we will spend the extra money if we know that product is going to be of value. Like, we typically don't buy, you know, bargain brand stuff unless there's no difference. Like, if it's, you know, like a, a marketed Band-Aid versus like an adhesive strip or whatever, we're going to get the cheaper one because what's the difference? But when it comes to video games and this idea of putting value to it, as we've said, like the independent space has really gone like head over heels in terms of trying to make these high concept, high value games. But they're still having that trouble in terms of proving that in terms of their pricing. Like we've said, like $30 or more for an indie game and people just kind of, you know, stand there, you know, shocked. Like, how dare you charge that amount of money? But do you think, like, it's possible or do you think we will see, like, independent developers say, here's a $60 indie game made by, let's say, 5 to 10 people. Like, do you think that is possible for somebody to say it's not easy because in order to pull uh, a big pro- uh, a lot of money with a product that's like your first product mm-hmm. uh, you've got to be delivering not only the quality but the content that is something that typically has been worked on for a few years and and the the challenge there isn't whether you can do it or not the challenge is can you afford to, to upfront that before any money comes in? Mm-hmm. And and usually, even the the best teams are, are uh, that are with the most promise, they run out of money before they reach market if they try to do something too elaborate. Mm-hmm. So so how do they get funded? That's the thing. Yeah, maybe they could make that game, but but who's going to fund them? That's that's the real tricky part. Is if they could have the funding. And they have a tight team, uh, and they use some remote work and and can farm out assets to places where it's cheaper. They can make a great game on a relatively reasonable budget. But again, also, where do they even learn how to build a studio like that? Yeah, they have to they have to do it somewhere. So it's a lot of it's I recommend is doing projects basically, uh, you know, not expecting to make any money like I was doing for eleven years just just skill building and then if you start to to hit it um you start to get a following and you start to figure out what you're doing and you get enough people to get like that then you go for the real game and you do your best to try to get the funding to make it or to make it happen it's it's mm-hmm. tough though because investors are know that this is a 95 percent failure rate industry mm-hmm. there's got to be something exceptional about you for them to open up their purse to, to fund you properly and again, like if you're trying to make something experimental or something that nobody's ever seen before, that exponentially raises the risk because you don't have a foundation to jump off. Like 
like again, like going back to the car industry, like nobody is going to try and build a brand new car. Let's say one that has three steering wheels and six wheels, like a Mad Max kind of car, like that kind of thing. Because again, where would you even begin to do something like that, and who would really want to front that money? And when it comes to the independent or just the game developers. This is why we see major studios focus on the big hits. Why a lot of people are investing in Battle Royale right now. This is a invested in open world uh, shooters like Grand Theft Auto. Or in chat earlier, we mentioned the whole cover-based shooter uh, fad from a few years ago. Because they thought that if people bought all of this, surely they'll buy mine. Or that there's a market for it. But One of the things I like to tell people is that... Is that Game developers don't make games. Investors make games, mm-hmm. and and really, in order to, to in order for us to start to see really, really hot games that that haven't been made before, we need more highly educated investors that can make those types of decisions and decide where where to go and have some influence over the development process that are that they're involved. And and right now there there aren't that many really knowledgeable investors in the space, mm-hmm. uh, and the ones that are, are doing well. And I and I think Tencent as a as a company has gotten pretty smart as far as picking out the cherries, and and promoting them. Uh, but I haven't seen a whole lot of it being done uh, in the United States from U.S. A uh, investors or angels or whatever you want to call it but but that's but that's really where the uh, what's going to take is is the investors themselves have to get more educated so they can decide where to put the money and then go ahead and do that mm-hmm. we've scared a lot of investors off because mm-hmm. we did a lot of stuff that harmed our investor class uh by wasting money and when you do that you get investors who are less and less likely to take risks and uh that's hurt Game development uh, substantially over the last ten years. Yeah, we didn't take care of our investors. And like keeping with that, like something else just popped in my head. I wanted to get your thoughts on developers who spend, like, who go all in on larger projects. I'm talking three to five years plus on a single game, because for a lot of people, like, we've kind of assumed like that is not advisable to spend that much time on just one single project i i think that i don't know I, i've seen some big big projects that like for instance when i was on the civilization online project you may not have even heard of that game uh huge project uh multinational development teams mm-hmm. uh that works and you know a very well-known franchise uh and I came in, and, and because of what I do, I'm pretty good at telling it, it figuring out if something's going to be successful or not. Uh, and at some point, I got to the point where I saw that I had to give a recommendation to cancel that project. Uh, uh, I didn't want to because I'm a huge Sid Meier fan. Uh, you know, I've met Sid Meier. He's thanked me for helping him on two of his games. Uh, I had to. I had to recommend cancellation of that project and that's exactly what happened um but that's important that we cancel games if they're not going to be successful Mm -hmm. instead of going all the way to then because otherwise investors take a huge bath 
Yeah. Uh, and investors need to have somebody on board who understands the various aspects of the game development that can report back to them, who are trustworthy, who aren't just going to say, oh, yeah, this is going to work because they want to keep getting money. Yeah, just like the whole uh, Silicon Knights fiasco from a few years ago. With them, like, that. I'm sorry? Oh, I'm not sure if I'm up on that. Uh, Silicon Knights was the developer of... Uh, they did Eternal Darkness. That was their most high-profile uh, one, but they also made several games where, you know, they were like lying to investors. They were delaying games. They, I think, at one point, they were siphoning funding from one game to make another one. I think uh, they made an mm-hmm. X-Men game that was, I consider, like one of the worst games ever made, and it was found like later that they were taking the money that they were supposed to be developing that game. And they were working on their own uh, property. I think it was called Too Human. And then and that game also failed. And I think it, I, I forget if they got sued or not for like basically misusing the funding for it. Yeah, well, I mean, th- that scenario is way more common than you're ever going to know. Yeah. Keep that kind of stuff secret. Mm-hmm. But that happens a lot. Yeah. And investors knew how much often that happened. <laughs> They're probably even more skittish about investing in the types of games we want game developers to make. And what you were just saying there regarding like knowing when to shut off a game or go away from it. I just had a conversation with uh, Brian Collin, who's been in the industry for, I think, over 30 years at this point. He was one of the designers on Rampage. He's made, uh, according to his website, I think he's made over 90 video games. And we talked about that under that importance of being able to fail and knowing when you have to pull the ripcord, that if this idea is not working, don't spend another two to three years trying to make it work. Go do something else. And a lot of developers either don't understand that or they just, again, try to chase that dream of, you know, I'll make this work and I'll be the hero and I'll make all the money in the world. But it rarely happens like that. Well, if, if it's hard to admit it's hard to admit failure and yep. it's hard to it's hard to lay off people that you've hired and, and see that anguish and that whole process. It's it's uh, it's devastating. <laughs> uh, no one wants to go through that, but it's better than it's mm-hmm. better in the long run for the industry if we pull the plug early because then investors don't lose all that money and still have a chance to continue investing instead of losing their money and then exiting and going to a safer industry to invest in. Or your example earlier of like being asked to like ghostwrite somebody else's work at a company because they didn't want to be seen as being a failure. You know, I, I just want great games to come to market so that people can play them. You know, if I have to, if I have to, you know, not have an ego and do whatever it takes to make a great game come to market, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's certain types of secrecy and stuff that are a little impractical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, good luck hiding that kind of stuff indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eventually comes out. Um, yeah, again, like, I'm trying to think if there's anything else regarding value really fast. I guess anything that uh, comes to your mind that we didn't talk about? I just think the whole subject is very complex. Yeah. I think we hit the, 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 base, the base topics that I think your viewers are going to want to know about. Yeah. But I think it's a topic that deserves a lot more in-depth uh, view, not necessarily on the podcast, but just 
uh, a lot deeper understanding at the executive level in in, in game development, at the investor level in game development, and and then also understanding that that uh, that you know for every for every good game that makes it to market, there's a hundred that won't. And so we need to be much more generous as players in rewarding uh, by paying a higher price tag for those few games that are really winners that that really made that extraordinary effort to make us happy. Yeah. And again, and not give them a, not give them a hard time if they charge five dollars more than you wanted to spend for a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mean, one question that came to my mind. I think you may have answered this already earlier, but. Like when we going back to like the microtransaction, the free to play space, you said of course that people are more interested in the context of what that purchase is going to get. Like, what does it do for me? Like for a developer watching this, who's thinking about making like a free to play or a microtransaction based game, like is it worthwhile to look at other games of that genre in terms of their pricing schemes, whether it is a CCG, a MOBA, even if it's like a free-to-play shooter, and use that as the basis for your prices, or should you come up with like your own scheme for that kind of game? Data-driven design is still very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people still swear by it, but the problem, the base problem with data-driven design is it requires you to copy something that's already been done in order to use the data from something that's already yep. been done, and and consumers. Uh, because the way dopamine works, uh, uh, there's there's an inherent system, a feedback system that keeps you from getting dopamine when you do something that you've already done, uh, which is our own body's system to avoid addiction. We can override that if we're clever or ruthless enough, but still, the body attempts to adapt to avoid uh, addiction. So we don't get the same interest in something that's already been done before. So without a knowledge of the science or the biology, somebody is going to attempt to just assume that if they do the same thing over and over again or, or the, and try to optimize it using data and sign, they'll end up with a better result. But that's not the case because the humans, humans are, the humans that they got their data from last year are not the humans that, they're, that are buying their product this year because humans have adapted. They're organic. And that's, I think, something that engineers don't understand because when you're building a house, the materials you're using to build a house may not change from year to year. But when you're working with humans, they do change from year to year. So you can't necessarily rely on your data. Because the data is not real. Data was real. Now it's not real because it's already obsolete a year later. And you, you're assuming that, that humans are fixed type of entity that never changes yep. then you're making inherent error in the way you uh, and that's why this methodology that's one of the reasons why this methodology doesn't work despite all the somewhat uh, fairly educated people who swear by it and I can that are, en- that are engineers and not biologists yeah. and we can see similar parallels to people who when they're trying to make a video game, they will use, you know, retro design or they won't look at what's happened in the market. They'll think, oh, I'll just make, if everyone loves Dark Souls, for instance, I'll just make another Dark Souls and people will love my game. But not only has the market shifted since then, but also people's thoughts and understandings of what makes those games work 
also changes. As Sharky says in chat, the industry changes at a breakneck, breakneck pace. Now, he's saying at the moment, but it's always been like that, I felt. That people are, as you said, people... It has people, to be. Yep. It has to be, because humans are changing at a breakneck pace. Yep. Again, like what we see work one year, even at the start of a year, may not be the same thing at the end of that year. And a lot, and that's one of the big, as you were saying earlier, Carlos, in terms of the risks of game development. Most games don't come out, you know, day to day. They spend months and years in development. So what you think will work if you start your game in 2016 may not be that way in 2018. And I know that to be true because I've spoken to developers who they started a game. I'm not going to you know, name names, obviously, but they started a title, I think it was like in 2012, 2011, it took them four or five years to make that game when nobody was making other examples of it, and then they released that game, and lo and behold, all these other examples have came out since then, and now they're suddenly competing in a market that they didn't even realize existed while they were making their game. It's, 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 it's a huge advantage to be first into a market. Yes, so, so being able to, to, to bring a good idea to market quickly is, is key. And that's going to require either a lot of money or a lot of efficiency. And uh, that was one of the great things about Wargaming is a very efficient company. They were mm-hmm. able to produce some pretty amazing stuff pretty, for pretty low amounts of money. And that allowed them to ramp up from 40 employees to 4,000 employees in just two years. Yeah. And that's, I think that's going to be like, that's my, that could be a really good point to end on. Because again, we can segue into so many topics, you'll miss your play in a few days. But the idea that, like, there's this concept that a lot of people think that, as we said, like, video games are like a high risk, you know, we need to put everything into a game and, you know, it will succeed all the time. But, the studios that generally stay around the longest, people like uh, Jeff Vogue, uh, Cliff Harris, um, I'm drawing up on some of the other elves I've spoken to, they understand that value of being able to make a game that's affordable. And not just affordable in terms of from the consumer side, but also being able to develop a game like that. Like we said, well, not... Oh, electric cars, electric cars are high risk. They're, they're you know, whoever's first to market with electric car probably lost a lot of money before they got there. And I mean, we already have electric cars, but, but, but people know that, that the gasoline powered engine, its days are numbered. So they're, they're willing to invest in this, these new technologies, even though they're high risk. Uh, they see that vision. Now we have, we've had a very difficult time creating that sort of vision in the game industry about what's going to be next for us. Uh, and I think that's just, maybe we just have a lack of visionaries. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I, I've written some articles on maybe why that is. Uh, but I, it's like, yeah, I don't want to, this conversation to go longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, we're not careful. <laughs> Again, like you can see, like for those of you watching me, right, you can see like the sun kind of like going like on my side. Like we're not careful. We'll just be, we'll go from light to dark to late again we'll still be talking here <laughs> but i mean it, it, but in short it, it, uh, around 2009 you know we had a huge economic crash and and the one industry that was that was actually performing well during that time was the gaming industry mm-hmm. and we have, we've got this reputation as being recession resistant 
And so as people were being laid off from a lot of other industries that were um, not necessarily consumer friendly, uh, a lot of those people said, well, I'm going to jump into gaming because that's that's an industry that they can, mm-hmm. that will survive no matter what. And so we had a lot of people coming into our industry who didn't understand gaming, who were already creating things that they got laid off for because they weren't pro-consumer. And, uh, and those people end up largely becoming our new leaders because these were powerful people. And that's caused uh, an approach to gaming that is not visionary. It's, it's a combination of, of, of efficient and ruthless that actually ends up not being very efficient because of a lack of understanding of a very different type of consumer and, and what they're using. And that's what we kind of talk about with the whole changes in Blizzard over these last few years as well. I would say that it applies to them. Yeah. But again, like we are just about at two hours in. We could sit here and chat all day long. I'm sure everyone would enjoy that. While, uh, while we were having the uh, laptop issue, there were a few people are saying like we should totally do. I have a few developers who would love to talk to you. Like we could certainly do like a roundtable cast at some point if you're game for that. Yeah, I would love to do a panel. Oh, that would again for those of you watching. We'll need to make sure to get the extra drinks and food in because I think we may be going extra long on that one. But well, I mean, and you and you're 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 big enough deal now, Josh. <laughs> big name, so you know we could get some power powered people that would ask some very sophisticated questions back and forth to other people in the panel, and uh, and it could get to be pretty interesting what we'd come up with. Maybe we'll chat about that when you get back from PAX. I mean, about trying to set up something like formally for it. Okay, I may be going to Australia pretty soon. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't officially say yet, but uh, well, we'll see. But we were joking earlier. We should turn these cats into a monetization that every like minute, like a little taxi cab fare starts popping up that people have to pay in order to keep the cast going. <laughs> But I don't know. I'd prefer to pay to get us to stop talking. Yeah, there we go. That's perfect. <laughs> Make the cat stop. Make it stop. $50 purchase right now. <laughs> but for the people watching us live, I'm afraid... Oh, yeah, we need a loot box. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, someone said we should have a loot box that people can pay to get time to watch these cats. Like, spend $5, you'll get two minutes of podcasting. Maybe you'll get the super rare hour-long uh, hour of minutes of cast. <laughs> but I'm afraid, unless, uh, I'm afraid for the people watching, unless you start throwing money at us, I'm afraid we're going <laughs> to wrap things up here. We don't... Insert money to continue. I'm afraid that's not going to work here. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting topic, but I think we've we've done it. We've yeah. done it done it properly. I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I think with that, uh, that I think is a great point to ending. So again, Rami, it is always a pleasure to have you on. And like I said, uh, when you get back from PAX and whether or not your trip to Australia goes through, let me know, and we can certainly talk about maybe doing something a little bit more formal in terms of a roundtable. Yeah, no, I mean, even if I'm in Australia, I can still do a yeah. panel with you guys. All right. Sounds like that will be something to look forward to. And again, best of luck with the PAX panel or the PAX presentation as well as your game. For the people watching right now who want to look at it or want to know more about what's the best place to find information? 
Oh, uh, well, I can throw you a link, but it's Destiny Sword is the is the name of the the game we're building in Toronto. All right. And and what's it, and what's unique about it is that we're 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 doing combat with consequences where. Uh, physical injuries, even mental trauma and stress are modeled persistently over the lifespan of the unit. And a large part of the metagame is you interacting with your units to try to deal with their stresses uh, and try to keep them on the right side of stable so that they can they can bounce back and go back to fighting this war uh, for you, whereas otherwise they wouldn't. Yeah. It's not like you just restore from save or whatever. This is this is, or everyone is just magically restored after battle. So yeah. there's a lot of psychological stuff involved, and we're we're working with mental health advocacy groups and veterans advocacy groups to make sure we do it responsibly, and uh, as realistically as we can in a game. And uh, what is the estimated release date for people interested? Give us about a year. All right. But we've made a lot of projects between each show. I mean, we showed it for the first time at PAX East, and then we're showing it again at PAX West, and there's going to be a lot more to show at PAX West than what we had at PAX East. So, great. Small team, but we're doing good. Great. Best of luck with that. And yet, if you have any like recent papers or things you've written about like the value of games or anything like that, uh, feel free to send them over to me on LinkedIn or Discord. I'll include them in the description down below for people to read. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not writing as much on Gama Sutra as I used to. Yeah. Um, a lot of my papers got uh, not featured, <laughs> um, and I couldn't get an explanation as to why that is. Yeah. So, And some of my best papers to date are just my most recent papers, and they weren't featured. So uh, I'm not sure why that's happening, but yeah. it just didn't seem to be yeah, the noticed. right environment. That. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed the same thing so on mine. I've been doing more on medium these days and of mm -hmm. course on game wisdom. But that is another topic for another time. So um, I will let you go for tonight, Rami. And again, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking many more times in the future. But Thank you. Thank you, Josh. No Always problem. Pleasure. But uh, for the people watching us live right now, we're going to end things here. If you're watching this record and would like an ad-free version of this, be sure to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash I'll be back later tonight for our regular game streams. And, of course, make sure to check out our Discord channel link down below. But that's going to do it for this cast. Have a great rest of the afternoon, or for those of you watching this recorded. And we will see you for another discussion about the art and science of games in the near future.